Hello, welcome everyone to today's class. Today, this week, we are starting the parsha of Kiseitse. Kiseitse It is a classic parsha. It's right at the end of the series, at the end of the parsha, at the end of the book of Devarim. And the this um, this parsha of Kiseitse has some fascinating um, uh, fascinating laws, fascinating things. Now, so you're wondering, like, what's so fascinating? So, well, one of the things is that um, in this parsha, there is, I believe the number is in the 70s. It's something like maybe 63 or 60, whatever, something out of 613 commandments are laid down in this, um, in this parsha. So that itself is, is, is unusual. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of information over here. Okay. Nevertheless, um, there's more. There's more to, there's more to this. What else is, do we have going on? We have some really fascinating um, topics that feature here. One of them is the Ben Sora Umura features in this week's parasha. And another one is the laws of Yibum, Yibum and Chalitza. And we're going we're gonna to discuss this. But as we discuss it, there's more to go through on this. Uh, we want, we're going to discover how Judaism and Jewish thought has been protecting women's rights for much longer than any other community ever has, which is interesting. You've got to take into consideration historically, until about a, th- a thousand years ago, or for sure a thousand years ago, a couple years, a couple hundred years ago, women were considered possession. This is not a Jew. This is not. Um, this is not the way that we will look at this at the end of today's class. And let's jump straight into it with the following introduction. So there was a a, a rabbi, a community leader, a really great scholar who took upon himself to announce a cherem. What's a cherem? A cherem is a ban, a ban, B-A-N. The ban was on multiple different things of which two of them will come up in today's discussion. One of his bans was that no man should marry more than one woman. Okay, so no longer can men marry two women. Another one. Another one was that a, a woman cannot be um, a woman cannot be divorced against her will. Wow, those are mind-blowing rules. We'll discuss them as they come to us. They seem quite normal. However, they all needed to be enacted. They needed to be taught. Let's get there. But as we get there. Um, let's also um, let's also recognize the name of the person who taught this lesson. Who is the teacher of this lesson? A fellow called Rabbeinu Gershom, G E R S H O M, Rabbeinu Gershom. And um, later on, we'll find out when he lived, how old he was, etc. All of the important details that make this um, make, that make this so informative. Okay, let's go straight to let's go straight to source number one, and we will ask Reb Shmuel, Professor Blumenthal, if you will read for our source number one. Hold, wait for it, um, wait for it. Just a quick introduction. This Rabbeinu Gershom, he lived in Germany, and he is famous for a commentary that he wrote, and he's also famous for all the rabbinic enactments that he instituted, of which we're going to start discussing them now with the pasuk from this week's parsha verse from our Torah portion, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 15, Reb Shmuel, 
take it away, please. This is, this is the law when a man has two wives, one of whom he loves and one whom he dislikes. And both the loved and unloved wives have sons, but the firstborn is that of the unloved one. Okay, so there we go. That is reference to the first, the first mitzvah that we discussed, which is the law by, of Ben Sora Umora. Ben Sora Umora is a child who behaves against, he does everything against what his parents are teaching him. He, and specifically, he needs, in order to become the ultimate Ben Sora Umora, one needs to go and eat a gluttonous supply of meat within a couple of minutes. It's something like, it's multiple kilos of meat within something like six minutes. In addition, he must drink multiple gallons of wine all within a couple of minutes. He must be, he must appear nearly identical to his, to his father. Um, it's, a comp it's complex. It's complex. It's so complex that the Talmud says about this category of person that this, that this mitzvah has never actually been, been fulfilled. There has never been anyone like this. Um, and there's never been such a situation. Yes, there has been many rebellious people. Yes, there have been people that have left the ways of their parents, but they never has someone fit into the category um, of this fellow. Okay, but as we continue, let's get Rav Shmuel, please read for us um, source number two. This is a comment from the Talmud, Tractate Yivamot 65a. Off you go. Rabbi Ami said, whoever marries a woman in addition to his first wife must divorce his first wife and give her the payment for her marriage contract. Conversely, Rava said that a man may marry several women in addition to his first wife, and there is nothing wrong with this practice as long as he has enough to support them all. Okay, excellent. So what we have here is, if you, if you just double back to the posok, to the verse for a moment, we discover that the man has two wives. He married one who he loves and one who he dislikes. Okay, so now we know that there's a, there can be a possibility of a person with two spouses. So hold on, let's move just a little forward into the source number two. Now there's a conversation. The Talmud is always going to say, well, can this be done? So the Rabbi Ami said, anyone who marries one wife must divorce the previous and pay her her full, um, her full uh, what's the correct word? The marriage contract. The other opinion, Rava says that actually a man is allowed to marry several women into his alongside his first wife and there's nothing wrong with that at all now you are wondering what is actually going to be the ultimate decision well in the process of building jewish law there is a there is a system the system is after you check the verse then the mishnah then the talmud you have to look at the deciding opinions that follow one of the earliest deciding opinions from the, from the first millennia, born in, in, the, in the year 1013, is the great RIF, R-I-F. RIF is an acronym. It sounds for his name, Rabbi Isaac Al-Fasi. Isaac um, is a Yud, Yitzchak. Al-Fasi has the Fay for RIF. So R-I-F, Rabbi Isaac Al-Fasi, and he is one of the um, one of the greatest people to write halacha out of the Talmud. Okay, he wrote halacha out of the Talmud, which is a unique ability. 
and he also effectively made a lot of decisions with that information. Okay, and here we have the Rif and Rav Shmuel. I'm going to read this for you because it's just four words. It says, the Rif says, the law follows Rava. So take a look into the text of the Gemara right above you. Scroll up one, two, three, four, five lines. It says, conversely, Rava said that a man may marry several women in addition to his first wife. So what is the what is the final law based on the opinion of the Rif that a man may marry multiple women? Interesting. Let's continue looking. So according to the Torah, it is permitted for a man to marry more than one woman, but it is not encouraged either. So you're allowed to, but it's not advised. In fact, when we look at the stories in the Torah about the biblical man who did have more than one wife, we discover that each of these cases occur for very limited reasons. For example, Abraham, our father Abraham, how many wives did he have? We know of two, right? He had Sarah and he had, he, he had Hagar, right? So Abraham was married to Sarah for many years. She couldn't have children. So she said to Abraham, take my servant Hagar as your second wife and maybe from my servant you'll have children and who was born out of that Yishmael okay let's think let's look at another Isaac by the way only one wife Rebecca and that's it but what about Jacob Yitzchak Jacob had four wives minimum Jacob the third of the patriarchs originally planned to marry just one woman he wanted Rachel Rachel However, Laban tricked him, and as a result, Jacob ended up marrying Leah and Rachel. And because Rachel initially could not have children, so Jacob also married Bilhah and Zilpah, the two uh, maids in the family. So it seems like it's quite popular to get married to more than one woman. It, but nevertheless, the general rule seems to be that the men of the Tanakh, of the, of the, of the, uh, the Torah, the five books of Moses and the prophets um, only married one woman each. Like we see from the beginning of creation, God created man and one woman for that man. There was Adam and there's Eve. Like the verse says, and he shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. That's the plan of creation that a man should have one wife. In the Talmud as well, we do not find many rabbinic figures who were married to more than one wife. Okay. So now you're like, whoa, why do you tell me all this? Because nonetheless, the Torah permits it. So if the Torah permits it, maybe, maybe we should go ahead and do it. Even though it isn't common, you could do it. So, you know, go ahead, have fun. So now Rabbeinu Gershom, who we mentioned earlier, he was the one of the most, he was the most respected Torah authority of European Jewry about over a thousand years ago. And he established a rule banning this practice. Rabbeinu Gershom used a halachic mechanism, which we call the chayra. It's a ban. And, it's, um, and in that way, a chayrim has a total social banishment for the violator, which means that a person who violates a chayrim, what happens to him? He's not allowed to be part of a minion, a service. You can't use 
products like wine or meat that he prepares. And there are more such, um, there are more such rules that apply to this guy. So it's a very heavy um, thing to put onto somebody. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at source number three. And Alan, I'm going to ask you to read for us source number three. But just before you do, I want to make a quick introduction right over there to source number three. You see that there's two paragraphs. There's a paragraph that starts by Benu Gershon. And then there is another paragraph that has a title, Rema, R-E-M-A. So we need to know that the, the Code of Jewish Law, authored by Rabbi Yosef Cairo, um, was written in 1563, and he lived in Sfat, in northern Israel. But if you live in northern Israel, then the only way to communicate is by delayed post. It's like early COVID post. Delayed post is the only way to mail things. That means effectively that how is the information going to be transmitted from city to city? So this, the people in Israel, they may have had their book of laws authored by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. But what about the people in all the Ashkenazi lands like Germany and France and, and England, etc.? What were they going to do? And especially they had deciding, they had people who were, who were strong enough to make these decisions on their own. So there was this great Rabbi Moshe Isilers. He was Rabbi Moshe, the son of Isser. And he was a scholar and a community leader. He lived in Krakow. And he started writing a code of Jewish law too. So there was going to, for a moment, there was going to be a Sephardi version and an Ashkenazi version. Can you imagine what kind of fights this would create in a greater Jewish community if there was a code of Jewish law for so the Sephardi? and a code of Jewish law for the Ashkenazi, we'd create, we'd have such a, a, a division um, that who knows what would happen to our community. So when, as soon as the Ramah heard that, that Rabbi Yosef Cairo was writing such a book, he said, I will only write comments onto his book. I won't write my own version, I'll write comments on his version. And in that way, there is just one volume that everybody in the Jewish world ascribes to. So with that, um, I'm going to ask Alan, please read for us the two comments, one from the one, the first one is from Rabbi Yosef Cairo, and the second one from the Ramah, please. Yes. In a Gershon prohibited the marriage of more than one wife, but his enactment did not spread to all the lands i.e. outside the Ashkenazi European lands. Nonetheless, in all our countries, the Ashkenazi lands, his enactment and tradition remains in place to marrying two women is prohibited. Okay, and so then give us the remark, please. Oh, you did, you just did it, thank you. So what do we have here? We have Rabbi Yosef Kari is saying, it's not done. The Sephardi rabbi is saying, oh, we don't keep this one. And the Ashkenazi rabbi is saying, oh, actually in our countries, we are totally observant <clears throat> of this ban on marrying more than one woman. Fascinating. What happens next? Why do you think Rabbeinu Gershom 
needs to introduce this ban? Why must he establish this rule that a person not marry two women? I'm going to open the floor. Let's get some, some guesses, some answers, suggestions. Alan, go for it. You tell us something. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot right there. I see that. Why we should only marry, why men should only marry one woman? Yep. <laughs> from a personal perspective or from a... Give us a personal perspective. perspective. <laughs> I just think it's about commitment. Commitment. Okay, that's reason number one. I like it. Um, Reb Shmuel, do you have a comment on this? Um, the, uh, the, the verse we read earlier about the loved wife and the hated wife and that the firstborn is from the hated wife, it, I think the Torah is indicating, and I think this shows up later, that this can lead to all sorts of problems. It can lead to the wayward son. It can lead to, I think, to some other things that follow that suggest a kind of chain of a chain reaction ensues from okay. the from having two wives. Absolutely. I love it. Excellent. Okay, so you guys, you guys are like really with it over here. I'm gonna give you four reasons, four reasons why you may not want to, why a person should not marry a a, a second spouse. Are you ready? Reason number one is because back in those days. Jews were not allowed to own land, which meant that Jews had to go into merchandise. Merchandise means you're on a boat. If you're on a boat going from country to country, buying stuff and then bringing it home to sell it, you end up spending a lot of time in other places. Now imagine if a man said, okay, I will have my wife in India on the Silk Road, and I will have my wife in, um, in, in France or in, in Germany at home. Okay, so it still sounds like fairly okay, especially if he's a well-to-do man, he can afford it. The next problem is that what happens if he, start, if he starts having children with both of them? What effectively is going to happen is that he's going to have kids in India, kids in Germany, and they will not know that they have siblings. What happens, and, and now imagine if you make a shidduch, make, make a match between these two kids by accident. They meet at college and like, hey, I like you. Let's, let's get married. And then they discover they're actually siblings. Problem number one is that the, the Jewish community was so wide. And if you traveled from here to there and you had one wife there, one wife there, you might end up, end up having kids who will marry each other and not even know they are siblings. That was problem number one. Problem number two was that culturally in Christian Europe, it was abnormal to have a second wife. Nobody did polygamy then. Everyone was monogamous. And so Rabbi Nagarshim said, let's not stick out so much. Let's not be so different from everybody else. Suggestion number two. Suggestion number three, when a man gets married, he takes some responsibilities to take care of his spouse. If he's taking care of his spouse, he needs to have enough money for this. If he doesn't have enough money for one, he definitely can't take on a second. And since at that time it was more common to be a poor Jew than it was to be a rich Jew, it felt it probably was more likely a better move to avoid taking on more responsibility. Okay, and finally, comment number four was that it seems that Rabbeinu Gershom himself had some bad experiences regarding a second wife. 
What's the story? It seems that he himself had, had two wives and that led to a fight, a family feud, at which point one of, one of his wives plotted to have him assassinated. Well, the rabbi is gonna be assassinated. He realized that this is a danger for the rest of the community too. It seems that one of his kids, because of this fight, dropped Judaism altogether and became an apostate. So, out of personal experience, Rabbeinu Gershom says that this is not a good idea. Let's drop the polygamy. Okay. In any case, the Jews of Europe accepted, universally accepted, Rabbeinu Gershom's rule. However, the Sephardi communities did not officially adopt it. Is there any community in the, in the greater Sephardi community that does or that did for until fairly recently keep uh, polygamy alive? Yes. In fact, the Yemenite Jewish community kept up polygamy for many years until they made a mass migration to the Holy Land. Um, and it was called, what was it? Operation Carpet, Magic Carpet, when they brought all the Yemenites into Israel. Thank God we have a safe space for them now. And it was at that time that the ones who were already married to two wives maintained that. But the next generation did not. So ultimately, everybody seems to take on this, um, this, this thing. Okay, we are going to go. I'm going to read for you uh, the, the next part, which is the 100 Rabbi Dispensation. It's source number 3B. And we're quoting here from the Maharam of Rottenburg, who, by the way, we read, we spoke about him last week. He was the rabbi who was abducted and put into a tower and he died over there because he didn't want to be ransomed out. That was last week's conversation in the questions and answers at the end. But in the meanwhile, what do we have over here? He says the following, he says, um, the prohibition of Rabbeinu Gershom to marry two wives cannot be absolved without a dispensation from a hundred rabbis spread throughout the three provinces of Anjou, Lombardy, and France. I'm not sure where Anjou is, nor am I sure about Lombardy. But in San Francisco, there's a street called Lombard. So maybe it's connected. Okay, the exemption should not be provided without sufficient reason. So there is this, this tool, which is called the 100 rabbi exemption. And that is special. In It's a special solution for getting around this problem. When do you use it? Well, a woman, for example, a woman who, um, who loses her mind who becomes unfortunately crazy, God should protect her. And she is unable to receive her divorce document because she is so insane. Such a woman, such a woman cannot be divorced. And she's also not in any position to be a spouse to her husband. And so the rabbis can con, con um, and get together a group of 100 rabbis to permit him to marry an additional wife. Now, by the way, why 100 rabbis need to get together, one simple explanation for why there's 100 rabbis might be, and this is a guess off my cuff, because 100 rabbis together will be sure, you can be sure that they're not gonna fall prey to doing this for any social or political reason. Right? Everybody is human. Even the Torah mentions that um, bribery blinds the eyes of the righteous, of the wise. And if so, where, if there was a group of 100 rabbis, they could all fall 
um, they, I mean, each person individually could be um, fooled into doing something wrong, but a hundred people together, a hundred wise people together, each one with their own story and peckle, they hopefully will be able to maintain the truth of the story. Okay, source three C. This comes this comes from the Bach. We are going through an intense halachic discourse right now, attending a high end halachic conversation. But this is what it feels like sometimes to be in yeshiva. Let's take a look. So the recent halachic literature states that the prohibition could be absolved by a hundred rabbis. This is probably a tradition from the court of Rabbeinu Gershom, who is called the light of the exile. That if a situation arises between a husband and a wife in which the prohibition is no longer beneficial, whatever the situation may be, a hundred rabbis may agree to absolve it. The pro this process is necessary in order that it should not be easy for future generations to override the prohibition to marry additional wives. Our rabbis have permitted the marriage of an additional wife in cases where the first wife lost her sanity by a consensus of 100 rabbis. This was done on several occasions and a testimony from the Bach who lived between 1561 and 1640 and was a prominent Ashkenazi halachic opinion whose, whose teachings are still studied till today. Okay, so that was all section number one. We've discovered that there is a verse that allows you to marry, that says you're allowed to marry two people. However, we've also seen that no one seemed to, it seems to be irregular. And even when it happens, it's uncommon. After we discover how uncommon this is, the next step is to pay up, is to, is to recognize that now it is actually rabbinically prohibited we no longer do it and no one's allowed to do it unless there's a rare and special occasion when you need when you need an exemption from 100 rabbis and that brings us to section b the veto power let's get some questions on section a before we go forward reb allen so where do you find 100 rabbis where do you find the 100 rabbis yeah, I mean, you know, especially in those days, it's got to be tough to get a hundred rabbis. Okay, so you, so, so you're, you're making the best point, and that just prove that just that just strengthens the solution, right? You're, you're saying like, okay, now let's save this husband from from his problem. Let's get him a hundred rabbis. So what would you do? You'd load up, you'd load up your your horse and wagon, right? You'd get a document. You'd get a document on which. Uh, the the rabbi your personal rabbi would write out your story and he'd say so and so the son of so and so who lives in the town of such and such on the river of x and y in next to the village of ab with the president and prime minister and, and government called cde right and he gives a lot of descriptive terms so that you know who this guy is and how you can verify him and then this guy gets on the road with his parchment with space for 100 signatures and he goes from village to village to village. Every village has some level of Jewish authority. The bigger the city, the more members of authority there are. For example, by the way, let's just say it like this. In Atlanta, Atlanta has a population of close to 200,000 Jews. In Atlanta, there is more than 100 ordained rabbis. Really? Yep. Of which, I mean, I'm counting myself in one, as one of them, right? Am I allowed to count myself in this? I probably, I don't think I'd ever sign on one of these documents in my life. I, I, I would not, I would just, I would, I would say, listen, I'm not big enough for this. Go get the bigger people to, to sign these papers. 
But nevertheless, in the olden days, you know, in the old country, the 15th century, the rabbis were, had to make decisions on their own. My father just writes to me that he has signed twice on such a document, which that's a fascinating piece of, uh, of, uh, of uh, a fascinating piece of testimony right here, right? That it seems like it's, it, that it, I mean, my father is, is, uh, has signed it twice. That's fascinating, okay? So after the, after the class, we'll get some details from him, maybe if he's able to share, if it's not a privacy um, conversation. Okay, any other questions? Uh, Alan, did I answer yours? Yes, okay, so you find rabbis because you go from town to town, you pick them up. Any more questions on section A? Okay, nothing's coming in, not, also not in the text, in the, in the chat box. So let's go on to source, to source four in section B. There is another rule quoted, taught by Rabbeinu Gershom in this, um, in our parsha. What is that rule? Let's get one, if you will read for us, please, source number four from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 24, verses one and two. Off you go. The prohibition of Rabbeinu Gershom to marry two wives cannot be absolved without a dispensation from a hundred rabbis spread throughout the three provinces of uh, Anjou. Oh, hold on, um, hold on, hold on. Uh, Juan, drop down to section, to source number four. Source number four, ah, got it. When a man, when a man marries a woman, if she is displacing to him, if he has evidence of marital misconduct or her, or, of, on her part, he shall write her a bill of divorce and place it in her hands. So it's uh, releasing her from his household. When she does leaves his household, she may go and marry another man. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Juan. So what do we have? We have two verses. These are the verses in the Torah that tell us about the mitzvah of divorce. Now you look at me funny, you say mitzvah of divorce, it's a mitzvah to get divorced. No, it's a mitzvah that when you need to, God forbid, get divorced, it should never happen. But when you need to do it, there is a certain Torah way how to do it. And so it shall be done. Now this mitzvah demands that the man placed the bill of divorce. This, by the way, is the only biblically demanded written contract. The bill of divorce is the only biblically written, um, biblically demanded contract, okay? And the man must place, the husband must place this bill of divorce in her hand, and that releases her from the household, and then she can go and marry whoever she wants. Now, the big question is, can a person divorce his wife without her, uh, without her wanting to be divorced? That's a big question. And it's a very important question because it certainly happens all the time that people, uh, one spouse is done and the other one wants to try, try, try and make it work. And the question is, can you do this. There's, let's get some more context for it for just a moment. Let's think about it this way. Think about the world a thousand years ago. 
a woman out alone on her own a thousand years ago might have been in physical danger. Who is going to take care of her? In a world controlled by men, in a world controlled by the strongest man wins, who is going to protect, protect the rights of the woman? So it's important to take into consideration everything that's going on over here. The, the Jewish law is source number five from Maimonides, Mishnah Torah, Laws of Divorce, chapter one, law number two. A woman can be divorced whether or not she agrees. Okay, let's take a look what happens next. Um, this, the coming up source is source number six. It's authored by a fellow called Rabbi Moshe, the son of Joseph. Was, he was Ditrani, the elder, and he was known by his acronym Mabit. And he was a 16th century rabbi who lived in the north of Israel in Sfat. And his book is called the Kiryat Sefer, which is a commentary on the Bible, the Talmud, and other difficult passages in the commentaries of Maimonides. Let's take a look what he says right over here. And Alan, I will elect you again to read for us this section. What is the biblical source for this statement? The verse states, if she is displeasing to him, he shall write her a bill of divorce and place it in her hand, thus releasing her from his household. The words, if she is displeasing to him, indicate that a man cannot be forced to grant a divorce, but a woman could be compelled to receive one because the Torah made it contingent on him, not on her. Okay, thank you, Alan. So now what we need to do is we need to get a, uh, we need to get a riot happening right over here. Someone has to make a, um, an objection. The woman doesn't get a choice, but the man does. Is that fair? So let's see what happens next. Rabbeinu Gershom comes along and he establishes a rule that was much more progressive in its time than all of the organizations that we have today that claim to support the struggle for women's liberation. Let's take a look by looking back in Parshas Chayesara, right at the beginning. This is the Parsha that talks about um, right, uh, right in the lifetime of Abraham. And we have a fundamental bedrock principle in the institution of marriage. There is the servant Eliezer. He's the servant of Abraham. He's going to an area called Haron, and he's seeking out a spouse for Isaac. He's on a mission from Abraham. The Torah tells us that he found Rebecca. And he's going to bring Rivka home. He's going to bring Rebecca home. After negotiations with Laban and Mrs. Laban, they said, okay, let's call the maiden and solicit her word. Let's ask her her opinion. And on that, Rashi comments, Rashi is the fundamental comment on all of the commission. He says, from here we learn that one does not marry a woman without her agreement. In order to get married, the woman must agree to the deal. What Rabbeinu Gershom innovated was that not only do you need the agreement of the woman for marriage, you also need the agreement of the woman for divorce. Rabbeinu Gershom established that it's absolutely prohibited to divorce a wife without her consent. Even in today's day and age, 
No enlightened country requires a husband to receive his wife's consent when he decides to file for divorce. By contrast, in Judaism, husbands have not been allowed to get divorced without their wives' consent for over 1,000 years. It's no wonder that Rabbeinu Gershon became a household name in the annals of Jewish history. It's no wonder that we all know who he is. Let's move straight into source number seven. This is from the Code of Jewish Law, the section which discusses marriage, chapter 119, um, clause six. And we will discuss the argument of whether um, marriages and divorces done against the will are permitted. It reads in Hebrew, a woman may be divorced against the will, that is the Rabbi Yosef Karo. And the, the Ramah adds, he says, that is from a perspective of biblical law. However, Rabbeinu Gershom prohibited the divorce of a woman against her will. So again, we come back around. You cannot, um, a woman cannot be divorced against her will. So it's important to pay attention to the context. The context of the time, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, is that the spouse, the woman, the wife, was considered to be a property of the husband. And as such, this law from Rabbeinu Gershom is really innovative. It's very progressive. It's taking into consideration the possibility that a woman has, has an opinion, which is a big deal when you think about that period of Jewish history, of that period of, of global, of, national, of international history. Okay, so with all of this in the midst of the conversation, Let's see, before we go to section C, are there any questions on the table? Comments, questions, tomatoes or potatoes? Juan, go for it. I think this is pretty much to prove that uh, the, the cultural impact of the context where the Jewish used to live, uh, pretty much uh, the Sephardi uh, culture is closer to the Muslim culture than the Christian culture. And, uh, and uh, many of the Middle East uh, customs uh, probably last a little more in, uh, in the Sephardim than in the Ashkenazi. The, the European impact of the Ashkenazi culture was bigger than in the Sephardic culture. It was late in the Sephardic culture. culture. So I think is the reason for many of these uh, interpretation of the law. You know what? I think that I'm going to agree with you on this one, that there is definitely influence from the surrounding cultures on the perspective of the people in their time. So one of the things that we saw earlier was that um, the Rabbeinu Gershom put this enactment in because in his society it was uncommon and it was, un it was abnormal for a man to be married to the multiple woman. So yes, you are, you, are, you are on it. And the correlation, the, the connections that one can discover in the Sephardi community and in their laws, in their culture, similar to what happened around them, will also be fairly prevalent. That is absolutely correct. 
Okay, another question, another comment. Okay, section C. Let's go to section C, Ashkenazim versus Sephardim. Um, I Rabbi Shmuel, I'm going to ask you to read this one just a moment. There is another topic which relates to our discussion. According to the Torah, if a married man dies without leaving children, it is a mitzvah for his brother to marry his widow and thus perpetuate. Could you could you take the chicken out of the oven, please? So there is a custom that a man that if a man passes away and he didn't have children, his wife should remarry into the family. He should marry a brother-in-law. And like that, she can perpetuate the brother's name and the family lineage. That's only if the brother is interested or the wife is interested. But what if they're not interested in each other? What happens next? So then there is a performance called a chalitza. A chalitza, and I'll spell it for you in a second, C-H-A-L-I-T-Z-A-H. Chalitza. This is um, the performance, the action, the behavior that must be performed between brother-in-law and and the and the widow widow in order to dissolve the relation between themselves. And then the woman will be the widow is allowed to then go ahead and marry whoever she so wants. So, Reb Shmuel, please head off um, on on off mute and give us source eight from Maimonides Mishnah Torah. The Laws of Yibum and Chalitza, Chapter 1, Law 1 and 2. It is a positive commandment of scriptural law for a man to marry the widow of his brother if he died without leaving children, as it states, and one of them dies childless, her husband's brother should cohabit with her. If he or she do not want to perform the rite of Yibum, he should perform Chalitza. Afterwards, she is permitted to marry another man. The mitzvah of Yibum takes precedence over the mitzvah of chalitza. Okay, so now we know about the law. We know what's good to do. The question is, which one is preferred? Should we rather do yibum? Yibum is when they marry, or chalitza when they don't marry. What's preferred? And the Rambam concludes, take the yibum option. Take the yibum option. And here we go into source number nine, which will be, the actual code of law, code of Jewish law on this topic. Some halachic authorities maintain that chalitza takes precedence, and the Ramah says, even if both desire to perform yibum, we do not permit them to do so unless it is clear that their intentions are for the mitzvah alone. Wow. So even though it is, even though it's considered to be the best possible thing to do, Nevertheless, we don't allow it unless, in, a, unless in, in such a circumstance where it's clear that they have a mitzvah intention. And now we jump into the Rebbe's Sicha. So let's go, let's go on a rotation. We'll do page by page, I think. We have three pages coming up. Is that accurate? Three pages? So we'll give to um, Rebbe Shmuel, if you'll continue reading for us, um, depending on the exile. Um, you know what? Then just go ahead and read the whole thing, I think. Okay. Uh, what takes precedence, Yibum or Chalitza? Upon examining the various rulings and discussions by the halachic greats, 
one will notice that the Sephardic authorities usually rule that Yibum takes precedence, while the Ashkenazi authorities write that Chalitza takes precedence. There is also another matter in which Ashkenazim and Sephardim differ, whether one is permitted to marry more than one wife. Ashkenazim abide by the enactment of Rabbeinu Gershon, which forbids the marrying of more than one wife. This enactment was originally set only until the end of the 5,000 from creation, i.e. the year 1239, but was then extended further. This enactment is only absolved through an exemption from 100 rabbis. However, Sephardic Jews never accepted this, his enactment in the first place. Until our day in Sephardic lands, it is possible to marry more than one wife. While in Ashkenazi lands, this is not a reality. We can suggest the following explanation. Maimonides writes the following regarding marriage. A, a sensible person first establishes an occupation to support himself, then purchases a house to live in, and then marries a wife. As the verse states, who has planted a vineyard, who has built a house, who has betrothed a woman. In contrast, a fool first marries a wife. Then if he can find the means, he purchases a house. Finally, towards the end of his life, he will seek out a trade. As the verse states in the curses, you shall betroth a woman, you shall build a house, you shall plant a vineyard, your behavior you will, will be disordered. Now there was a difference between the situation of Ashkenazim and Sephardim in their respective exiles in Edomite and Ishmaelite lands. The Ashkenazi exile was more intense. They suffered greater persecution than in the Arab lands. This is also associated with a general difference between Christianity and Islam. Maimonides notes that Muslims believe in one God and do not worship idols while the Edomites serve other deities. This is reflected in the difficulty of the exile as well. The exile in Christian lands was more difficult than the exile in Muslim lands. We can see right there, just a moment. This is actually an amazing point, what we just said. The reason the Jewish people suffered in European countries more than Islamic countries is tied up to their religious beliefs. Since the Edomite beliefs are considered idol worship by our standards, the exile was more difficult as well. So maybe we can even say that the idol worship of the Edomites is not as much as a reality anymore. The Rebbe often pointed out that the committed belief in God is evident in the United States, like it is expressed in the dollar bill where it says, in God we trust. And there is no reference over there to um, you know, multiple deities and multiple representations of, of different versions of a God, etc. And maybe that's why in our time, the exile is easier just based on that notion that there is less of this idolatry in the air. Okay, Rabbi Shmuel, please continue. We can suggest that this is also reflected in the differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardi halakhic authorities with regards to marriage, the question of Yibum versus Chalitza and the enactment of Rabbeinu Gershom. It took into account the difficulty, in this case, the economic difficulty that existed in Ashkenazi lands more than in Sephardic lands. Okay, so there we go. The Rebbe has given us a very practical explanation. Maimonides writes in very clear terms that before a person marries a woman, he needs to ensure that he has the ability to support her. If he marries without the means of support, he is considered to be a fool. In European lands, the economic situation of Jewish uh, communities was extremely difficult. Many husbands could barely support one family. Supporting two women and their children would have been impossible. 
The rabbis in those lands therefore prefer to ban marriage um, to two women and to advise against the yibum, in which in many cases meant having a second wife simply because the husband would find it too difficult to support such a large family. This is the Rebbe's explanation of why we can't marry a second wife. But in the Sephardic communities, which had, they had a better financial situation, men in many cases were able to support numerous families and therefore it was not necessary to ban the polygamy. And this brings us to section D, which is why is this rabbi called the light of the exile? Did you know that the rabbi was called the light of the exile? Did we talk about that? I think we did. Rabbeinu Gershom is called Ma'or Hagola, the light of the exile. And so you're wondering why such a name. So let's take a look. Um, and here it goes. The Torah sources that mention Rabbeinu Gershom famously add the title light of the exile. No such title is used for the rabbinic leaders before or after him. It is associated with two of his many enactments, which were not only included in the code of Jewish law and often implemented, but are also quite famous, even among those who are not well-versed in the code of Jewish law. The first enactment is that a person cannot divorce his wife without her con consent. And the second is that he cannot marry a second wife. With these two rules, Rabbeinu Gershom illuminated the entire exile. So here we go. We went from talking about our physical realities. Now we're talking a bit about the spiritual side of things. Even when the Jewish people find themselves in exile, in a physical exile and a mental exile, there is a rule. Number one, that God may not divorce the Jewish people against their will. Heaven forbid. Being that a Jew obviously does not want to be disconnected from God, which is a great idea right there. God cannot get rid of us unless we agree to it. Okay, law number two, you know, can't take a second wife, which is, which would mean something along the lines of God couldn't switch us out for another nation or add another nation instead of us. So now let's put a bit of um, annual context to this. We're in the month of Elul. Elul is a acronym for the Hebrew words, Ani Ladodi, Ladodi Li, or which translates as I, am so I, I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me it talks about the connection that lovers have to each other which this this verse comes from the sheer hasherim the song of songs written by king solomon as a long analogy of the relationship between god and the jewish people and he describes describing that relationship of the love like as if it's the love between a man and a woman and in this analogy god is the man and the Jewish nation is the woman. God loves the Jewish people. So the Rebbe teaches us, based on this analogy, says that whatever God tells us to do, he also does himself. So if there is a rule ultimately that, uh, that has been adopted by the people, by the entire Jewish diaspora, then God has to live up to it too. So the moment Rabbeinu Gershon established the rule that a Jewish husband cannot divorce his wife against the will, now God also became obligated by that rule. God cannot divorce his wife, the Jewish nation, against their will. And since every Jew, deep at heart, wants to be connected to God, he or she opposes divorce, and so God can never get, give a get, give a divorce to the Jewish nation. What's more, Garbeinu Gershom's second rule, that a man cannot marry another wife on top of his first wife comes along and establishes that therefore God also cannot marry another wife. He took us, 
the Jewish people as his wife on Mount Sinai, that means that he can never choose another nation to be his treasured nation in addition to the Jewish people. Let's take a look at the continuation of the Sicha. And I will ask, Alan, will you read for us, please, the spiritual, the physical and spiritual connection, which extends for another three paragraphs. The explanation. The reason an enactment becomes accepted in our world is because it is accepted in heaven as well. Our sages said that which God does, he tells the Jewish people to do as well. In other words, first God does so, he begins his behavior, this behavior. Therefore, when the time came for those rules to exist in heaven, they were accepted among the Jewish people as well. The same is true, vice versa, from us to heaven. We want to ensure that heaven will not suffice with, with not divorcing, God forbid, and not taking another wife, and instead behave in the manner of a true marriage, in which, just as a husband provides all the needs of the wife in a physical sense, God provides all our needs in a spiritual sense, as explained at length in Hasidic writings. To do so, we need to ensure that there is a similar reflection in the marriages here in our world that spouses live in peace and tranquility together. A true peaceful life is what is based on our Torah. As Maimonides writes, citing the Midrash, the entire Torah was given to bring peace to the world. As the verse states, its paths are paths of pleasantness and all its ways are peaceful. When a home is built on the foundation of Torah and its commandments, it brings true peace between the husband and wife and as the Talmud says, when the couple is meritorious, the divine presence rests among them and unites them. And then God brings his marriage with the Jewish people out into the open. Unlike the times of exile, when we are like a woman whose husband has traveled abroad, as the Midrash relates, God brings it to the fore and makes it our reality. Thank you, Alan. And I think that is just a fantastic way to close this conversation when we recognize our relationship with God and we take into consideration that if we do our part, God is obligated to do his part. Not only that, and when we recognize that doing our part creates and builds and fosters the best possibilities, that brings us to the ultimate spot, the ultimate position by having a true peace and a true love um, amongst ourselves and amongst the entire world. In conclusion, let's just wrap this up on a halachic conclusion. A man should not marry two wives. That's settled. But if you need to get around it, you get you call the big the big the big guys, the big rabbis, not uh, not me. And you can call me too. I'll I'll direct you to the right spot, but go up to the top and then and the next part is that now we've seen through a whole bunch of different through a few couple of other examples how um how we're we are protecting the everybody to be in the best position the whole way through life a, a woman is protected when she gets married a woman is protected um when she needs when she needs to leave her marriage and, as, and the most important, the ultimate, the end all, is that we, as Jews, are protected in our marriage to God and kept here on a permanent level. 
And so we always conclude with a blessing, let it be the will of God, that we all see how deep our marriages with God are, and let us reignite, we spark the love that we have right here on our own homes, and together we can have the best and most blessed year ahead. And thank you all for joining. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.